Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Commodity Culture Interviews, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. Before we get started, standard disclaimer, none of this is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. Today's guest is an expert in the precious metals space, a student of Austrian economics, and the author of the Endgame Investor Newsletter, Mr. Rafi Farber. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Jesse. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started with your own journey in investing. Where did you begin and how did you discover precious metals and get attracted to that space? Well, there's a lot of different answers to this question because people construct the stories of how they got places later, you know, after the fact. So I can tell different stories and there's different dominoes. Basically, my line line dominoes lined up in my life uh, one after the other since I was a child and they all kind of fell over at some point or another. And then I was led down a certain path and then I followed that path. So I could describe a few dominoes. There's like a the first one I remember, and I've told this story uh, several times in many different interviews, but um, when I was a kid, I saw a 1,000 shekel bill in my father's drawer, the old shekel in Israel, um, hyperinflated in 1983. So I, I, I said, how do you have 1,000 shekels in your bill, in, in, your, in your drawer? He's like, oh, it's worthless now. It doesn't matter. I'm like, how does that happen? I don't know. And I, it kind of scared me. Um, and then I asked him, well, why does inflation happen? Because he's in, in my father said, because it grows an economy. That's how they grow an economy through inflation. But then how does it kill a currency? And this didn't make sense in my head. And then I had this memory in, um, in my, uh, my macroeconomics course or my economics course in high school and microeconomics made sense to me, supply and demand. And I got that it was logical enough. It made sense why prices are what they are and everything was okay. And I was able to logically get through it. And macroeconomics came and it was like they were describing why the dollar has value because it used to be gold backed. But now a dollar only has value because the government says it does, which made no sense to me. I was like, what the hell does that mean? And I just kind of like tucked it away. And I said, that doesn't make sense. But I'll just like throw it in the in the garbage pile of my brain to like deal with later because I don't have time to think about this right now. But it definitely didn't make any sense. Um, and then. Um, what fell, what, 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 there's other dominoes in there and I'll skip that because I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but uh, the final domino, when I, when I set out on this path to precious metals um, was I just, I was just curious one day of what everyone was talking about with, um, uh, this is going to seem unconnected, but it's connected with partial birth, partial birth abortions. And I just, I didn't know what anyone was talking about because this is not really an issue that I deal with myself um, I'm, a, I'm an Orthodox Jew and we kind of have our own, you know, community in terms of what we do, what we do about abortion and the whole abortion debate in the, in the U S is sort of a Christian thing. And, uh, so I wasn't, I was, I don't really pay attention to this stuff, but I looked up what partial birth abortion was because it was like, there was some kind of news about it. So I looked it up and I Googled it and I ended up on ronpaul.com <laughs> because, <laughs> Because he that he was an obstetrician, he had this uh, and and RonPaul.com is not a, is not a website run by Ron Paul. It's supporters of his. I don't know. If, I don't even know if it still exists. But like it, re- it led me down this like crazy rabbit hole 
uh, of like uh, what partial birth abortion was. And I, and I, I saw like the, the whole idea of like how someone like a nine month pregnant woman who could easily just give birth and give it up for adoption instead of just giving it up for adoption because she can't handle the baby decides to actively get someone to suck its brains out and kill the baby. And this totally freaked me out. And I got it. I understood like why everyone was freaking out about this because this is just murder. Um, I understand if you can't handle the baby, I understand, I get it. Just why do you have to kill it? Why? And then, so I, so I was back on ronpaul.com and I was like, oh my God, this guy is, I see what he's saying. And like, it, it lined up every question I had when I was a kid and the economics and the Austrian school, I kind of like, I, I was up for like 36 hours, just like reading everything that Ron Paul said. And I was like, okay, all the questions that were bothering me since I was a kid, I got it. That's how, that's how I got into it. And precious metals came from there, et cetera. So people often refer to gold as a hedge against inflation and store of value, but you like to emphasize that above all, it's money. So could you break down for us how gold is hard money in today's economic environment? Oh, not just in this economic environment. Gold is money, period. I mean, when, you're, when you are exchanging a dollar for uh, a pack of gum or groceries or whatever, what are you exchanging? You're not exchanging a piece of paper. You're exchanging a gold substitute. You're exchanging the gold or silver value of that dollar for the goods and services that you're buying. And why, is, why must this be true? This is true now. It's true. It's true always because of something called the monetary regression principle. The only reason you know what prices are now is because you knew what prices are yesterday. Otherwise, prices would, completely, would be completely arbitrary. And if they are completely arbitrary, then there's no way to divide goods and services and everybody starves to death and division of labor breaks down. The purpose of money is to divide goods and services according to supply and demand. Otherwise, there's no division of labor and you can't have an economy. So you have to go back in time. And you always go back in time, one day at a time, one second at a time, and it always goes. So the question is, how was the dollar born? And some people could say gold standard, and but that's not even that. Even that's not true. Um, the dollar was born as a silver standard, and then it was changed to a gold standard as a transfer of wealth from the middle class who owned silver to the wealthy who owned gold. Um, but let's just say that gold that that the dollar started as a gold standard. Um, why? Because that's how barter barter started by exchanging one thing for another thing. That's how society began or economics began. And the thing that was most exchangeable for other things just happened to be silver and then uh, and then gold later. Um, so even now, when you're exchanging a dollar, you're exchanging a gold substitute. It happens to be a very inflated gold substitute. And we know what happens when the when the the illusion of the dollar's value of gold at what is it 1850 now or something like that when that illusion is broken um then then there's a depression because that's what that's what happened in 1933 right gold went from 21 to 35 as an admission by the government uh that uh this exchange rate is not real and therefore we have to change it and then you had a big great depression uh so the how how i how i divide this i mean you could say i mean People could say, well, if if you give a bullion store eighteen hundred fifty or plus a premium for um, for uh, you give it to the store in cash, they'll give you a gold ounce. That's true, but um, if it, but the the real price of gold, the monetary price of gold, is what price would it be if everyone on the planet were to exchange all their dollars for gold right now? What would the price have to be? What would the exchange rate? It's not even a price. It's an exchange rate. What would the exchange rate between paper dollar substitutes, uh, gold substitutes and gold have to be 
And the answer is probably around $35,000, $40,000 to cover the, you know, to, to make it, to make everyone who wants gold have it, you know, to have it. Uh, that's the monetary price. The price that we see on the futures exchange, that's the, that's the industrial price because not everyone needs gold for industrial purposes, but everyone needs it for monetary purposes. It's just they pretend that the dollar they have is gold, but uh, not, not these exchange rates. So you're a student of the Austrian School of Economics. For those who might be unfamiliar, could you break down the philosophy of it and maybe contrast it with modern monetary theory like the Keynesian philosophy? Yeah. Um, look, I'm not an academic. I didn't study this stuff in uh, in any Ivy League school or anything. And you'll get you'll get a much more comprehensive and academic and accurate answer from an academic who has a PhD. But as I understand it, um, Austrian economics is it sees economics as a study of human action, right? They're, they're, they're economic scientists. They're studying human interaction with other humans and coming to conclusions based on value scales. Um, whereas Keynesian economists are approaching economics as, um, as mad scientists really that wanna see how they can influence it or change things or influence human, they're social engineers. And they, they, they try to quantify human action in terms of equations, which cannot be done because human action cannot be quantified. And there's no constants in human action. You can't make it into an equation about how, how a person will act. And so they try to do all the time. Uh, so it's, it, it becomes impossible. They try, to, they try to break, they take the individuality out of humans and they put it into mathematical equations. And they say, oh, if we add this money here, then the people will act like that and they'll act in the way we want. They try to manipulate things all the time. Whereas Austrian economists try to figure out what's happening and why humans are acting the way they do uh, instead of trying to influence it all the time. Uh, that, that's, that's the basic difference. But if, if you wanna, um, like, if there's any uh, physics bust out there, the, if you've ever heard of the grand unified theory of, of physics, right? There's, a, there's this, um, contradiction between, let's say, um, uh, between in economics, macroeconomics and microeconomics, which I was talking about in my high school story, right? There's supply and demand in microeconomics. It makes sense on an individual level, but with macroeconomics, supply and demand sort of like in, in Keynesian economics, it breaks down and it doesn't exist anymore. And the logical laws of economics, just they pretend it doesn't exist because they say, oh, if you add, if you add money supply, it won't decrease the value of the money when, when we're in a deflationary period or whatever, and they, they make up all this stuff and supply and demand doesn't apply anymore. Whereas Austrian economists say that supply and demand always applies and it's always, it's, there's one unified system here. Um, sort of like uh, when I was talking about the grand unified theory of physics, trying to unite um, you know, general relativity with quantum mechanics and the small scale and the big scale. So um, Austrian econo ec economics does that with the business cycle uh, where they say that if you if you increase the money supply and then you stop increasing the money supply, you're going to have a boom and a bust, right? It's going to affect the entire economic system. Whereas Keynesian economics tries to deny that and say we can just manipulate anything and make a and make a quasi boom forever and make everyone rich by just printing units of paper. It doesn't make any sense. So your newsletter is called the Endgame Investor, and we're going to get into that a bit more later. But could you lay out what the Endgame you're referring to is and how you see it coming to pass. Right. The end game, we've seen it many times in history. Exactly how it's going to come to pass this time, I don't know, but I can imagine that it will be something like we've seen before, but global. Um, and what did what have we seen before in the end game? The end game is what the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises calls the crack up boom. 
right? So we we know what booms are. Booms are when economic activity in fiat currency terms picks up, and it looks like everyone's rich because you know the spending, the GDP goes up and blah blah blah. But GDP is really just another count of the money supply because if you increase the money supply, you're going to increase the amount of dollars that are spent in an economy. It's all tautology. It's kind of stupid. Um, so the crack up boom is otherwise known as hyperinflation when the economy speeds up the economy. It's not the really economy. It's the, the, the amount of uh, money being or money substitutes being circulated in an economy speeds up to the point where the value, the, the desire to hold cash balances as money itself falls to zero. And once the desire to hold money substitutes themselves falls to zero, then uh, people are willing to spend an infinite amount of money or infinite amount of currency, I should say, on anything just to get rid of it. Uh, so that's that's the crack up boom. That's what we're headed for. And it doesn't matter if it's if we're talking about central bank digital currencies or paper money or whatever. It's all the same crap. So <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. I mean, people make these big deal out of central bank digital currencies, and it's a big deal in the sense that it robs everyone of any privacy whatsoever. But it's all the same fiat. So when it all goes to zero, that that's it. It's all it's all dead. It's all the same crap. So um, the the crack up boom is going to be something along the lines of what happened in Weimar, what happened in Zimbabwe, or what happened in any hyperinflationary country, except everywhere all at the same time. And what happened then in, in Weimar, Germany, you could buy, for example, a mansion in Berlin for like four or five gold coins. So I expect the people with physical gold to be able to amass huge amounts of real resources. And that's when the purchasing power of gold and silver goes through the roof. And I hope that I hope that central banks have none. I hope they sell all their gold, get rid of it, and sell it to all the libertarians in the world, so they have the the power and the money to accumulate as much real wealth as possible and become the rule, the new rulers, and you know make some kind of society that makes sense instead of all this disgusting nonsense we have now. So, do you think this end game will lead your average person to gold and silver, to to hard money? And if so, in this new society, how will people be transacting? Do you think it'll literally return to silver and gold coins? Would it be another gold-backed currency or or some other system? In the initial phase, in the initial phase, when the when the real breakdown happens, it's going to have to be physical, because all trust in all money substitutes will be broken. Um, so it's, it's not like, it's not like people are going to have this revelation. Oh, I understand what money is now. And I get what Rafi's saying when he talks about the monetary regression principle, and they're all going to suddenly study Austrian economics and become geniuses in economic theory. That's not, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the same thing that happens in every bubble, you know, whether it's Bitcoin, people chase Bitcoin because it's going up. People chase this stock Tesla, whatever, because it's going up. People are going to chase gold and silver, not because they understand what money is because it's going up and it's going up because it's, this is the end game and it's money. So people are going to try to chase it. They're trying to get. You're going to try to get as much physical as they can. They're going to call for delivery. There's going to be a. There's going to be a run. There's going to be you know uh, dealers going broke. They can't get supply, and there's going to be panic. And then and then the prices of everything are going to go way 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 down in terms of physical gold and silver because everyone in the world's going to want it. So in the I think in the in the the book the theory of money and credit Mises says that yeah, we have to go back to 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 exchanging physical coins. Uh, I don't think it's going to stay that way forever, but in the initial phases where where prices are just off the wall and bonds are collapsing and this and that, then then no one's going to accept anything for any of their services in return, goods and services in return, except for coins. 
So you're going to need some of that. Are you going to you are you going to need like huge mansions full of it? No, because I don't think it's going to last forever until, you know, someone's going to offer to store your gold and silver for some meaningful substitute. And then substitutes will come back to life and there will be more trustworthy ones and less trustworthy ones. That's what it should be. Instead of a monopoly on the substitute supply, there should be competing currencies and the, the, the dishonest ones will go out of business and the honest ones will live. There should be a free market and money. That's what I think is going to happen. I hope, uh, you know, otherwise we'll starve to death. <laughs> so for anybody out there, it's probably a good idea to get one's hands on some gold bullion, silver bullion. It, is there a particular kind that is superior over the other, or is it just the number of ounces that is the most important factor? Um, I, there, I would just say, make sure that you're actually buying physical gold or physical silver. It doesn't really matter what kind. Just don't don't get the unless you love art. If you're an art collector, you can buy numismatics if you want, and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but you're not buying money with numismatic gold or silver. You're buying art, and you should recognize that. Um, but just get, just get the, you know, the lowest premiums you can get as long as it's a trustworthy kind, I'd probably stay away from Chinese gold or silver just because it's kind of icky. And you don't know, you don't know, you don't know if there's like tungsten in it or something, just use a reputable dealer and look for decent premiums and you should be fine. You should focus for the coins. Actually, you should focus on silver. It's good to have a little bit of gold with you. Um, but I wouldn't have too much because it's way too dangerous. It's way too valuable, but I would say have enough for a year of expenses. And after a year of, and everything blows up, uh, things should hopefully calm down and, um, things can get back to normal. So I know you also invest in gold mining stocks. Could you maybe walk us through a little bit of what your process is, um, and how you select mining stocks the things you consider before making an investment? Um, yeah, well, if you're getting a, a promotional email from a gold miner that says, uh, you know, we, we found this huge thing and we just need this many millions of dollars in order to start production. It's going to start in a month. And we have this uh, paper from the mining commission, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, our stocks and go to create, don't, don't, if you get an email from a company, just delete it and don't ever buy it. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty, it's not, it's not that complicated. I mean, look at the, first of all, you want to buy the big ones. Um, you want a little bit of Barrick, you want a little bit of Newmont, um, you want a little bit of Agnico Eagle, the, the general big names, like you just get some of those. Um, and that's not, that's not rocket science, but if, if you want to, if you want to look into the, the smaller companies, then you should either know the people personally, or you should know the people personally who are promoting those people personally. Um, it, it, you, you have to trust these people because there, there can be a lot of, um, a lot of fraud in this thing. And if you want to do your own re research, then look at their balance sheet, look at their production, look at their debt, um, look at their jurisdictions. Um, and, uh, it's like, we just had the, you know, like Russian mining companies, and all these sanctions had just messed up the whole picture. So you don't want to be, you know, concentrated in one jurisdiction because there could be these political problems um, that uh, if, if the U.S. locks a mining company out of the dollar, they could just collapse even if their business is great. Um, and you're going to have to deal with that. So um, I, lo I look at balance sheet. I look at whether they're hedged. I try to stay away from miners who are hedged against gold and silver. Um, to lock in prices because if there is an end game, which there will be, and the price of gold and silver just skyrockets and they're short gold and silver to hedge their, their bets, um, it could be very bad for them. 
Uh, a little hedging is okay, but uh, there's there's some companies that uh, that overdo it, which was a big reason why gold and silver mining companies really suffered um, in the in that in the gold and silver bear market from 2011 to 2015. Um, but now they're they're behaving a little bit smarter. So um, it, it, th- th- these are things you could do yourself. Um, you can or or you could subscribe to a newsletter like mine, or you know whoever. Um, but yeah, just look at the numbers and and try to trust and try to see if you can find out who the people are and if they're trustworthy. How do you feel about ETFs? I had Andy Sheckman on the show last week, and he was saying an ETF like GLD that tracks the price of gold is, in his opinion, one of the worst ways you can invest in gold. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that, and also ETFs that hold physical, um, like the Sprott Trust, and like diversified basket of miners as well. How, how do you feel about those different types of ETFs? Um, well, look, it depends what you're trying to do. Uh, in the in the end game, when the end game really does come, ETFs are not going to help you. Forget it. it the, whether it's Sprott or GLD, whatever. You know, Sprott, Sprott is more trustworthy, yeah. But like, if everyone's desperate and and everyone calls Sprott at the same time, saying, "I have PSLV, I have PHYS, please give me my gold," we, Sprott's going to say, "Sure, here," and it's going to mail it to you. It, it's not going to happen. Okay, I'm not saying it's not there. I'm saying you're not going to get it. Uh, you're going to have you're going to have paper gold, and what are you going to do with it if the dollar can't buy anything? So it, GLD is useful if you're trying to speculate using gold, right? And I do that. I don't do it with a huge amount of money, but there are. But if you want to play the options in the gold market for speculative purposes. Um, then GLD would be the one to do if you want. But if you want to, if you want to buy gold, GLD is not what you want to use at all, and neither is PHYS or anything from Sprott. Um, so gold mining stocks uh, are, are it's 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 less controversial, less of a problem to have ETFs uh, because the ETFs are just baskets of shares, and there there's much less of a chance that they're cheating and not actually holding the shares that they they say they hold. They probably hold it. Um, the, the question is like, what happens to mining shares when there is an end game and, uh, what I think is going to happen and why I advocate holding mining stocks in the first place is that when the currency collapses and it will collapse to zero, uh, then the gold mining companies and silver mining companies will be practically the only companies that can pay your real dividends. How? With gold and silver certificates of their product because they'll have the money and you'll be able to earn real dividends and maybe they'll, they'll be able to, to mail out certificates and you can talk to your company and say, uh, here's my certificate, mail me the gold. And when things settle down, eventually you'll probably be able to get it. Um, whereas with ETFs, I don't think so because they're owned by banks. So you don't want to mess with those unless you're speculating on the gold price, which you can do. I just don't recommend it um, for an end game scenario. And what about gold royalty companies? How do you see those as an investment vehicle? Um, well, it, they're the ones that lend money to gold miners to be able to uh, mine more efficiently. And look, if you look at the gold, if at the royalty streamers, they've been doing very well. Uh, Franco Nevada, Royal Gold, the, all the, all these companies have been doing extremely well. Um, so they're not miners, but will they play a role in the end game? Yeah, I think they will. Um, and uh, I advocate owning both of these companies, owning both miners and royalty companies, because they're 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 symbiotic, they're synergistic. Uh, so own both of them, and um, just make sure that they have good finances and they know what they're doing. And 
if they're huge companies like Franco Nevada, it's just like, yeah, have some of it in your portfolio. You don't have to do so much research on that. Um, but smaller companies like Sandstorm, you should probably know the people involved um, or at least know, know the people who are promoting them. And I uh, wouldn't go as heavy into them because you, their future is a little bit more uncertain. But yeah, you want a basket of these things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rafi. Amazing conversation. Could you let people know about your newsletter and service, The Endgame Investor, and where they can find that? Yeah, my service is The Endgame Investor. I focus not necessarily on timing exactly everything right, which I can't do, which nobody can do. I don't believe anyone can do it. As much as they market themselves that they're the perfect market timer, they cannot do it. Um, my strategy is basically um, emotional stability. We know that the end game is coming. I know it's coming. The subscribers know it's coming. You just have to be positioned in order to be able to weather any downturn, um, which means you have to have some cash available and you have to be able to buy on dips and you have to have enough cash in your portfolio in case there's like a crash, like we saw in March 2020, which affected everything. So you can, you know, the most money is made when buying those crazy opportunities. And I believe that there is there's one more that's coming. Um, before the Fed turns around for the final time. So uh, you want to be prepared for that. Um, you can find me at uh, the Endgame Investor. Just Google it or any search engine, Endgame Investor, and it's on Seeking Alpha. Um, you can also uh, become a patron of mine on Patreon, where I give a weekly uh, uh, biblical commentary on monetary and economic topics, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, and um, if you're into Austrian economics, I'm your guy. Awesome. I'll put a link to those in the description below so people can find it. Appreciate you coming on the show and would love to have you on in the future to continue the conversation. Great. Excited. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.